You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. If I don't know you, my name is Brad. I'm really glad you're here with us. Uh, it's been pointed out to me by Zach, the sound guy, who's messing with my mic right now, uh, that my blues are clashing. And so <laughs> I apologize for if that's going to distract you. Um, uh, so if you don't know, our lead pastor's on sabbatical, so I've been doing a lot of the preaching. And one, I've learned a lot about preaching every week, but one of the things I've learned is that I don't have a lot of clothes. And uh, the few shirts that I have with a collar all look the same, and none of them match any of the shoes I have. So I'm sorry. And a quick note on baptism. So if you're maybe unfamiliar with the concept of baptism or new to church or anything like that or have questions about baptism, uh, we don't believe that baptism saves you. We believe baptism is something you do because you're saved. Baptism is a, an outward representation of an inward reality, that we have died to our sin with Christ. We've been risen again to new life in his resurrection. And when we get baptized, going in the water and then coming out of the water is, a, is like a visible public uh, example or, or reflection of that truth and reality. It's a public proclamation of our faith before a church family and before the world that we're identifying with Christ. Uh, if you, if, maybe if you're a sports person, you're familiar with the concept of high school students on, what's it called? Is it called selection day or, or commitment day when they make a commitment to a college and they put like the, the hat on that of like whatever school they're going to go to? It's, baptism is like putting the Jesus hat on and saying, I'm committed to Christ, I'm joining his team, and I want the world to know. And so if you've uh, placed your faith in Jesus and you would like to get baptized and you haven't done that yet, uh, then we would love to baptize you at the lake on August 27th. If you have questions about that or would like to sign up for that, then you can uh, contact me. Uh, come talk to me after the service or you can send me an email. It's just brad at gccugene.org. And I'd love to, to talk to you more about that. So that said, we are going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. Uh, if you will, open your Bibles to Philippians. It's towards the end of your Bible in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 2 today. 
Uh, Before we jump in, let me pray. God, you are a gracious and merciful God. You call each and every one of us to come to you just as we are. We don't need to clean ourselves up before coming to you. You accept us in our mess and our sin and our brokenness. You've provided a way through Jesus for us to be cleansed and saved, and for that we are thankful. You've called us to come as we are, but you're also calling us uh, not to stay that way. Your desire is that we would grow into Christ-likeness, and and your spirit is working in each and every one of us to bring that uh, about. And so we ask that you would help us to be courageous in our pursuit of holiness. Grow us in our willingness to give up comfort in order to follow you. Help us live lives that put the worth of the gospel on display, even if it means making sacrifices in our life. Jesus, you know the state of our hearts this morning. You know and you care. And so I ask that through our time together, you would be providing your people uh, with exactly what we need. God, give relief to those who are in pain and hurting. Give hope to those who are in despair. Give peace to those whose lives are in turmoil. God, we ask that you would also convict us that you'd reveal the ways that our hearts are wandering from you and give us the strength we need to turn back. Father, this morning our desire is that you would be glorified, that Jesus would be exalted, and that you would blow us away again and again with the glory of the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In my almost three years of being a dad, I have lots of moments that I'm not necessarily proud of. Uh, And one of these moments I'm not super proud of happened uh, just a couple months ago. Our family was on a walk in the neighborhood around our house. Jenna was pushing our youngest trip in the stroller, and Riggs was riding his little Strider bike along along with us. And uh, a, a truck parked on the street across from where we were walking, and the guy who was driving the truck got out. And so did his German Shepherd dog. And the dog jumped out and saw us and barked and then took off running towards uh, our family and ran right up to Riggs. And they were like nose to nose. Riggs doesn't have a concept of like a scary dog. He thinks all dogs are great and fun and cuddly. Uh, And this one might have been. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, We didn't get that far. But the dog stopped right in front of Riggs. And the owner called it back. And the dog turned around and ran away. Meanwhile, this was my response as the dog was running over. Like moving away from my family. Uh, Jenna, after this hall went down, she looked at me and very lovingly and graciously was like, are you serious? Um, so not a super proud moment where in the, the heat of the moment, I, rather than stepping in front of, between the danger and my family, I was like, you guys take the danger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run away. Uh, this isn't the first time I've realized this, but it, was, it made me realize even more um, that uh, it made me realize how natural self-preservation is for me. Uh, When not given any time to think, my natural reaction is to protect myself at the expense of others, even my own family. Uh, Now, you might not be as bad of a parent as I am at times, but I think that we can all agree that we like our comfort. We like to be safe. We like to take care of ourselves before thinking about anyone else. But this is not the life that we've been called to as followers of Jesus We're called to self-sacrifice, not self-preservation. We're called to serve others and not serve ourselves. So you can be comfortable or you can be courageous, but you can't be both. God has called us to be courageous as we live our lives in light of the gospel. But that courage comes at a cost. It comes at an expense, the expense of our own comfort. And that's a trade that we are not always willing to make. And today's text is about two courageous men who willingly give up their comfort for the sake of the gospel. Paul is explaining, at this point of Philippians, Paul is explaining his future plans, what he desires would happen next at this point in his life. 
And then as he's doing that, he's also commending these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's using them as examples of the kind of life that he's been talking about up until this point. Paul's main imperative, his main command in this section of Philippians that we've been studying has been to live lives worthy of the gospel, to live a life that puts on display the tremendous worth and value of what God has done for us through Christ. This worthy life includes steadfastness in the face of suffering. It includes unity through our humility of one another, towards one another, and it includes obedience to Jesus in the midst of a disobedient world. Paul, Paul put Christ forward as the Christian model for this kind of life, and now he used two, uses two men as model Christians that we can look to to see how these characteristics of the worthy life are lived out day to day. And I want to be really clear up front, Sarah said this, uh, Ian said this, our church's mission is to make Jesus the hero. We don't want to come on Sundays and, and put our pastors up as the heroes or the worship leaders or, 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 or other humans from Scripture as the heroes. Rather, our goal is to make Jesus the hero. And so I want to be clear up front that Timothy and Epaphroditus are not the heroes of this story, but they are pointers to the hero of the story through their character and conduct. They're sinners just like you and me who have been saved by grace through faith. And through the work of the Spirit in their lives, God is using them as signposts pointing to Jesus in a way that gives God the glory and not them. Model Christians do not replace Christ, they reflect him. And that's the purpose of Paul highlighting these men, is to show that their lives are reflecting the life of Christ. So let's read this text. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. We'll see what Paul has to say about these courageous model Christians. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been, great, has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So a quick background on Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, what we know about Timothy comes to us from the book of Acts, from some of Paul's epistles like Philippians, and then to the two letters that Paul writes to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And we learn that Timothy was a companion to Paul in his church planning efforts. Uh, Paul shared the gospel with Timothy. Timothy came to know Jesus. And then Paul took him under his wing and discipled him as he traveled around and they planted churches around the area. Eventually, Paul leaves Timothy in the town of Ephesus to be one of the pastors, one of the elders there at that church. All we know about Epaphroditus, we get from Philippians. So we're reading all that we know about Epaphroditus. 
He was from the church in Philippi, and he was sent by the Philippians with a gift that Paul has alluded to already in this, uh, in this book. And it seems like he was supposed to stay for a little bit longer and help care for Paul and tend to his needs while Paul was in prison. But he ends up getting really sick, so sick that he almost dies. And so he recovers from his sickness, and now Paul is sending him back to Philippians, carrying this letter that we're reading here today so that they know Epaphroditus is alive and well, and they can hear what Paul has to say for their church. And so in a lot of ways, uh, the Bible is full of kind of big characters and you know, people like Paul and David uh, and Peter and these, these guys that write parts of the Bible and, and, and are kind of heroes of the faith, if you will. And here we have two very average people. Timothy, uh, a young man who is trained up to be a pastor and goes and plants a church, uh, leads a church plant in Ephesus. And Epaphroditus, we don't know anything else about him. There's just two average guys who are following Jesus with their lives, and Paul highlights them as model Christians. So keep in mind, you can be either courageous or comfortable. You can't be both. And we're going to see in this text six courageous things that Paul is highlighting in these men that make them model Christians. Six ways they're choosing self-sacrifice over self-preservation, courage over comfort. So let's walk through each of these. First is hope in Christ. Uh, I misled you a little bit. I said these things were all about Timothy and Epaphroditus. This one is about Paul, and then we'll go back. Go, we'll move on to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, but this is worth noting, and it's something we see regularly throughout Paul's writings. If you remember, Paul is in prison while he's writing this book, and his desire is to go and be with the Philippians and to check in on them and to spend time with them, but he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's awaiting a verdict for his trial, and the sentence could very well be death. Nevertheless, when it comes to Paul's future plans, he hopes in the Lord. In verse 19, it says that he hopes in the Lord to send Timothy sometime in the future, and in verse 24, it says he trusts in the Lord uh, that he will get to come to Philippi soon also. Paul doesn't say that he hopes uh, his defense attorney is going to win. He doesn't say that he hopes justice prevails and the Romans realize that they've imprisoned him for doing nothing wrong. He doesn't say he hopes that someone comes and breaks him out of prison and rescues him. And he doesn't say he hopes some kind of financial donor pays off the guards and lets him go free. Paul's sole hope in his present circumstances is the Lord. And so that begs the question for us, what are we hoping in? What are you placing your trust in? As you consider your future, where are you placing your hope? Are you looking to a relationship for your hope, for your finances, your career? Are you hoping your future is secure because of what you have done to prepare for it? Or are you hoping and trusting in the sovereign God of the universe who secured your eternal future by sending Jesus to live and die in your place? This is a question for both the believer and the non-believer. And so if you're here today exploring the claims of Christianity, I would just ask you this, what is your hope in? Well, as you think about the future of your life, and someday you'll look back at the rest of your life and consider, was it all worth it? And what did I live for? What is that thing? What, what are you hoping for? What are you putting your trust in? What are you banking your, your future security on in this life? And not even this life, but also the next. If the Bible is right, and there is life after death, and death for humans is a comma and not a period. Our life will go on either with God or without. What hope do you have that things will turn out well for you? You see, the Bible says that the only hope we have is in Jesus to save us from our sins and provide eternal life. Nothing else can do that for us. And so for both the believer and the non-believer in the room, ask yourself, what am, what am I putting my hope in? 
What am I staking my future on? What am I, what am I trusting in as I think about the future, both in this life and in the next? So the first characteristic, a model Christian's hope and trust is in Christ. The second thing we see here is a concern for the interests of Christ. Look at verses 20 through 21. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul is commending Timothy as being unlike others because of his genuine concern for the Philippians' welfare. He cares for them deeply, and he wants to see them prosper and flourish in Christ. But then Paul contrasts Timothy with these others who seek their own interests and not the interests of Christ. And so when you put these two parallel passages together, Timothy's concern for the welfare of the Philippians is synonymous with, Paul, or with Christ's interests. Christ is interested in our welfare. The welfare of the Philippians and the welfare of his people is of great concern to Jesus. And so to neglect the welfare of fellow Christians is to neglect Jesus's interests, to neglect what Jesus cares about. When Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, we read about this in Acts. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. And yet Jesus so closely identifies with his bride that in his eyes, in Jesus's eyes, Paul was persecuting him. In John 13, Ian referenced this passage earlier. Jesus tells his disciples that the world will know that they're his disciples by their love for one another. If the world is looking at a Christian, how will they know? Yeah, that person follows Jesus. It's based on their love for other Christians. Our love for one another is evidence to the world that we belong to Christ. And so do you want to love what Jesus loves? Do you want to care about what Jesus cares about? Then look around. The brothers and sisters in Christ that fill this room rank very high on Jesus' list of interests. And so where do they rank on yours? You can't be genuinely concerned about someone's welfare if you don't know someone. And so, so my challenge this week is to maybe find someone here this morning in this room that you see often but don't know that well and get to know them. Go to lunch spontaneously today after church or have them over for dinner sometime this week or have a conversation with them today after church. Learn what's going on in their life so that you can be in prayer for them, checking in on them, and genuinely concerned about their welfare. A model Christian has concern for the interests of Christ, and Christ is interested in the welfare of his people. The third courageous characteristic of a model Christian that we see in this text is that they relate to the family of Christ. Paul uses familial language twice in this text. In verse 22, Paul refers to himself and Timothy in this kind of father-son relationship. And then in verse 25, he calls Epaphroditus a brother. We're all part of the family of God. And within a family are very unique and special relationships. Fathers and mothers to sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And while there's always conflict in families, uh, a family bond is nearly impossible to break. And so how much stronger is the bond, the family bond of those who are in the family of God, who are united by a bond much deeper than blood? Um, I've asked my brother, Daniel, who's in the room, uh, to do a lot of things for me as my brother at a cost or an inconvenience to him on multiple occasions, whether it's uh, asking him to come help me move or help with a project in the house. Uh, I think when uh, our first son was born, we were at the hospital, I asked if he would go over to our house and wash the dishes so that we could come home uh, to not a sink full uh, of dirty dishes. 
Um, he's driven us to the airport. He'll watch our kids for us. And no matter what, most of the time, he stops playing video games and he comes over and he helps. He puts FIFA on pause and he comes and helps. Uh, brothers and sisters are there for each other when no one else would be. They come to our aid no matter the inconvenience or the cost to themselves. To be a brother or a sister in Christ is to be available and ready to help out at a moment's notice. No one should have no one at 2 a.m. And we all have and all are brothers and sisters in Christ who are available for us when we need them. There are brother and sister relationships in the church. There are also father and son relationships or mother and daughter relationships. These are the kind of mentor-mentee relationships where an older saint takes a younger saint under their wing to disciple and mentor them in the gospel. This is what Paul did for Timothy, and it's what each of us should be looking to do for others throughout our life. Our lives should be like rivers, not ponds. The gospel doesn't puddle up with us and never go anywhere, but flows through our lives into the lives of others through discipleship. In the church, we get to follow each other as we all follow and pursue Christ, learning from one another, from those who have been there and done that and have more life experience to help us navigate life in light of the gospel. A family that only spends time together once a week, maybe around a dinner table, would not be a very close or tight-knit family. Sunday morning is kind of like our once-a-week dinner table gathering for the, for the family of God. And if we only see each other and are involved in one another's lives now here on Sunday morning, it's going to be hard to develop those kind of familial bonds. And so we should be engaged and active in one another's lives else, or throughout the week as well. So we relate to each other as the family of Christ. Fourth, the model Christians are servants of Christ. It says Timothy served with Paul in the gospel, and Epaphroditus, it says, was a minister to Paul's need. Both men were servants. Now, there's kind of two aspects in service to Christ that I want to point out here. First, serving Christ means that we're willing to lay our needs and desires aside for the good of others. Service always comes at a personal cost. Because serving others means that we're making a conscious decision to not serve ourselves. We're constantly bombarded with messages from the world telling us to think only about ourselves, to do what our heart desires, to pursue our passions, and to do whatever makes us happy. But this is not the way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an upside-down and subversive kingdom that flips the values of the world on its head. And so rather than being self-absorbed as Christians, we practice self-denial. And we orient our focus outward rather than inward. It's uncomfortable, it's costly, it's countercultural, but model Christians are servants. The second aspect of service that I want to point out is that serving Christ means also that we're obedient to Christ. The word for servant here is the same Greek word used for slave, and so it has implications for obedience. We've seen this already twice in Philippians where Jesus becomes obedient to the point of death. He obeys the will of the Father. And then Paul last week, like Ronnie talked about, calls us to continue to obey Jesus as our Lord. The mandates and imperatives that we see in the New Testament are not take-it-or-leave-it suggestions. They're commands that are to be obeyed by God's people. It's popular to let our own internal sense or feeling be our guide for morality, if something feels right, then it must be right. If something feels good, then it must be good. It is comfortable for us to determine for ourselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. 
It is comfortable to give into our desires, whatever they might be. But on the flip side, it is courageous to submit to a morality that comes from outside of ourselves, from the God who made us. It is courageous to actually deny our desires, especially the ones the world tells us to pursue and submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Now we don't and will never do this perfectly on this side of eternity. And Christ was already perfectly obedient for us. And he paid the penalty on the cross for our disobedience. But this doesn't mean that we don't obey. Christ is our savior, but he is also our Lord. And by believing in him, we are declaring that Lordship and submitting all of ourselves to it. Our sexuality, the way we manage our money, how we talk about people behind their backs, how we parent, what we look at behind closed doors, how we interact with others. Every aspect of our life falls under the Lordship of Jesus. And so as servants of Christ, we pursue obedience to Christ through ongoing confession, repentance, daily turning from our sin and towards Jesus. So model Christians are servants of Christ. We give up our comfort by serving others and by being obedient to Jesus. Fifth, we work and fight side by side for Christ. Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Gospel ministry is work and it is a fight. There is labor and there is conflict. And what is the work that we are doing? What is the labor we're participating in? And what is the conflict that we're engaged in as soldiers? We get a couple hints of this work elsewhere in scripture. In John 6, 28, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So the work of God is that people would believe in Jesus. That's the work that God is doing in the world. And we participate in that work with him. First Corinthians 3, 6 through 8 says this. This is Paul. I, plant, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive the wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So God is, is growing a field. He's building a building. And that field and that building is the church. Believers of Jesus gathered together to worship him. That's God's work in this world. And we participate in this building and planting process as fellow workers of God. Ultimately, it's God who gives the growth. GCC will not grow unless God grows it. We look to him for that. But we work with him by planting and watering the seeds of the gospel. The work Epaphroditus was engaging in with Paul was the work of evangelism, the work of spreading the gospel, the work of planting seeds of truth and then watering those seeds with ongoing conversations and appeals to non-believers to believe in Jesus. This kind of work ultimately will face opposition, opposition to truth, enemies of the cross of Christ, and we engage in warfare by fighting for the truth of the gospel. Uh, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, document the Jewish return from exile back into the promised land. The book of Ezra kind of documents the rebuilding of the temple, and the book of Nehemiah documents the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And during this building project, they face opposition. And so Nehemiah comes up with a plan to defend against this opposition while still working on the construction of the walls. And it's just kind of a cool image here. I want to read in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. 
Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So it's an image of servants of the Lord building the walls of Jerusalem with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. And we, do, we have a similar task, to construct and to build God's kingdom, to participate with him in the work of bringing people into belief, into his kingdom. And we do so by planting and watering seeds of the gospel with a shovel, but also prepared to face opposition and suffering with both steadfastness and truth, our sword. We do this working and fighting for the kingdom together. Remember, Epaphroditus was a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Christians don't engage in kingdom work as lone rangers, but side by side with one another in community. So lastly, number six, model Christians take risks for Christ. Look again at verses 19 through 30, or 29 through 30. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus risked his life for the work of Christ, coming to the point of death. It's the same phrase used of Jesus in the Christ hymn that we looked at a few weeks ago. Christ became obedient to the point of death, and Epaphroditus came to the point of death for the work of Christ. The word for risk here, it's a gambling word. And so the, the sense is that Epaphroditus was willing to bet it all on Jesus. He pushed the chips of his life forward on the table and said, I am all in for Christ. I don't think this means we do careless or unwise things, but I do think it means that we're so confident in the outcome of our lives and so confident in our identities in Christ that we're willing to do risky things for him. Taking risks for Christ could mean confronting the sin of a brother or sister in Christ and calling them to repentance. It could mean confessing your own hidden sin that you've been holding on to for years. It could mean sharing the gospel with a neighbor you've lived next to for a long time, but have never had the courage to bring it up. It could mean breaking off a relationship that you know isn't glorifying to God. Or it could mean persistently pursuing a spouse in unconditional love, even though they have done nothing to deserve it. Easy things are not risky things. And so what is the difficult thing in your life that you're scared to do? What is the risky thing that would bring God glory and benefit to others that you're fearful of doing. It might just be time to step out in courage and obedience and take a risk for Christ. So these are six courageous characteristics of model Christians that Paul highlights in this text. They hope in Christ. They're concerned for the interests of Christ. They relate to the family of Christ. They are servants of Christ. They work and fight alongside the gospel, for the gospel of Christ. And they take risks for Christ. And each of these things takes courage. It's comfortable to hope in material things. It's comfortable to be more concerned about ourselves than others. It's comfortable to keep to ourselves and not be inconvenienced by our family members. It's comfortable to expect others to serve us instead of us serve them. It is comfortable to give in to our desires. It's comfortable to not engage in the work and fight required to build God's kingdom. And it is comfortable to play it safe for Jesus and not take risks but you can be either courageous or comfortable, and you can't be both. And Christians have been called to courage and not comfort. Now, if you remember, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are not the heroes of this story. Their lives point to the ultimate hero as both their model and their means. 
Jesus is who they're looking to to emulate, but it's also Jesus that they're looking to for the power and the ability to actually do any of the things that they're doing. Christians, think of a, a Christian like a stained glass window. Beautiful to look at, but only because of the light that is shining through it. Jesus is, is the light that shines through Christians, illuminating the beauty of brothers and sisters in Christ, but we recognize the source of that beauty as being Jesus, not the window itself. These men are model Christians only because they reflect the Christian model, Christ himself. Because Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly trusted and hoped in the will of the Father. Not looking to earthly means to secure his future, but marching towards the cross confident that what God had planned was the ultimate good. And Jesus is the only one who has ever been truly, genuinely concerned for our welfare. He knows that our greatest need is a new heart, a total transformation, new life breathed into us from an outside source, and he provided all of these things in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus showed genuine concern for our eternal welfare by living and dying for us. Jesus is the perfect brother, the perfect father, the perfect son, the perfect family member who is always there for us at 2 a.m. and perfectly mentors, disciples, and guides us in truth. Jesus came not to be served like he should as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but to serve others in humility, to wash our feet and to care for our needs at a tremendous cost to himself. Jesus became obedient to the will of the Father, obedient to the point of death, knowing that his death on the cross was the only way for us to be saved from our sin. Jesus perfectly worked and fought for the gospel, planting and watering seeds through his life and proclamation of the kingdom of God and fearlessly facing opposition and persecution with both grace and truth. And ultimately, Jesus gambled his life, risked it all for us for you and for me. His love for us is so great that Jesus pushed all of his chips to the center of the table and said, I am all in for you and for me. Jesus gave up comfort. Jesus became uncomfortable so that he could be the courageous hero that we need to rescue us from our sin and death. And in response, because of the love Jesus has for us that led him to risk his life for us, we give up the comforts of this world and choose to courageously serve and follow him with our lives. I want to end with a story. Uh, in the third century, uh, the Roman Empire was in crisis. There was all kinds of issues. Uh, they were being attacked from all different sides, and there was internal conflict going on among the nation as these warring generals were fighting for power. Their economy was collapsing, and then the straw that nearly broke the camel's back uh, was this horrible plague uh, that took place during the middle of the third century AD. It killed multitudes of Roman citizens. And in the year 249, Emperor uh, Decius took the throne and began his rule over Rome. And he, in his interpretation, the problem in Rome uh, was a co consequence of failing to worship the Roman gods. And so he issued an edict that required all Roman citizens to make sacrifices to the gods on behalf of the emperor. So he set up this whole system that if you made sacrifices, you got a certificate that said you're good to go. Uh, and if you didn't, you'd be tortured and executed. 
So this was the first kind of organized, top-down, governmental persecution of Christians in church history. And this becomes the model that a lot of emperors after this use to kind of do widespread persecution of Christians. Uh, there's a man named Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage. And he, at first, escaped the persecution of Emperor Decius and, and took refuge somewhere safe until the plague got so bad that he had to return home uh, to, to lead his church. And so the, the, the plague at, at its height, historians say that it was killing 5,000 people a day and was spreading rapidly among the Roman Empire. Cyprian came back, and he, he gathered the church in Carthage and led them into the streets where this plague was wreaking havoc to help tend for and care for those who were sick and dying. And keep in mind, in the previous 10 to 20 years, these are the very people that are ratting them out as Christians and telling the authorities that they don't have their certificate and persecuting and, and chanting and, and cheering at their torture and execution when they refuse to worship the Roman gods. And now it's the Christians who are walking through the streets, caring for those who are sick and dying, who years earlier were the ones that were persecuting them at an expense to themselves. Many of these people contracted the plagues themselves and died. Eventually, Cyprian was caught under the rule of Valerian, an emperor later. Uh, he was imprisoned and ultimately martyred for refusing to deny Christ and make sacrifices to the Roman gods. So you can be courageous or you can be comfortable. Cyprian and the Christians, Christians in Carthage who followed him chose to be courageous and step into a dark and broken and dangerous world to care for and show the love of Christ to people who wanted nothing to do with them, who would prefer that actually that they were dead. Model Christians like Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus, Cyprian, and numerous others throughout church history are gifts to the church from God. But like any good gift from God, we enjoy the gift with gratitude, but we worship the gift giver. It is good and right for us to strive for holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness, to be transformed into the image of Christ. It is good and right to acknowledge those in our church family who exhibit these characteristics, who are model Christians, to thank God for them and honor them. We can behold the beauty of stained glass windows around us in the room and around the world while acknowledging that the true glory is the light of Christ shining through them. And then we worship the source of that light, Jesus. And so we're going to do that now together as we take the Lord's Supper and sing songs of praise. God, thank you for uh, Christians throughout history and, and people in our church who exhibit these kinds of characteristics, who reflect our model, which is Jesus, you. God, thank you for rescuing and saving us from our sin. We, on our own, we would be uh, stuck in a perpetual loop of self-preservation, self-focus uh, of, of pursuing our own comfort and security, but that loop has been broken by grace, God, by your love and calling us out of sin and into light, into life. So help us now to, uh, to live in light of that and to pursue not self-preservation, but self-sacrifice as we live courageous lives for the gospel so that others might come to believe in you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.